The idea that you can invest in nature and continue to pollute business as usual is, is a fallacy. We, we do not have enough trees on the planet to, or cannot even grow enough trees in order to offset our emissions. Bringing to light the latest hot topics in investor engagement and ESG disclosure, sustainability and impact, and brand and culture, this is the Luminous Spotlight Podcast. Hello, and welcome to this Luminous Spotlight Podcast. I'm Rachel Madden, Director of Sustainability and Impact at Luminous. Today, we're talking about the promise and the pitfalls of net zero, and I'm joined by Marcine Mitchell, Senior Vice President, Climate Change with the World Wildlife Fund. Welcome to the podcast, Marcine. Can you tell us a little bit about World Wildlife Fund and your role? Thanks, Rachel. Thanks so much for having me on. World Wildlife Fund is one of the largest conservation organizations um, internationally. And we recognize that climate change is, is one of the biggest threats to habitat and wildlife, but also to, to humankind. And so our work is geared towards reaching net zero in a way where both humans and nature can thrive. As the Senior Vice President of Climate, I am responsible for WWF US climate work across all our various goal teams and for reducing emissions, sequestering emissions through nature-based solutions and adapting to climate impacts. Great, thanks Marcine. So as you mentioned, Net Zero, World Wildlife Fund is one of the partners in the Science-Based Targets Initiative. And the Science-Based Targets Initiative recently released a new Net Zero standard. So that's on top of the existing guidance of setting a science-based target. So can you tell us what's different about this new Net Zero standard? Yeah, so the Science-Based Target Initiative was launched in 2015 after the Paris Agreement. And it was really one of the few options to help corporates align their emission reductions with science. And the focus was really on the near term for them to set short term goals, five to 10 year goals, because this is really where the work is in these in these incremental steps. But after in 2018, you'll remember the IPCC, which is the UN scientific body, had released a paper about reaching the importance of reaching 1.5. And in that 1.5, we knew that we had to reduce emissions cut them by 50% by 2030 and go to net zero by 2050. And net zero means we reduce every bit of emissions that we possibly can, and there'll probably be some emissions left. And from there, we have to find ways to remove emissions from the air. So corporations uh, really got into this idea of net zero emissions by 2050. And so they really wanted us to have this race to the top. How do we cut our emissions? And so the SBTI has now, not only do we have the short-term target setting, which is still really key, but helps corporations look in terms of alignment with science, how do they get to net zero by 2050? So that's a really long-term goal. And it's an important goal, but we still emphasize that let's figure out how do we get the next five years, the next 10 years, which are those are really critical for us to turn the curve. Yeah. And it's so interesting because the language and the understanding of this is constantly changing. I mean, even as you said, in 2018, we had this new report where we went from a two degree target to 1.5 degree target. And then we looked sort of short term. Now we're looking much more long term so that the world of sustainability is one where the, the language and the understanding is constantly evolving. And even in, in this space, we've seen a change from talking about carbon offsets 
and carbon neutral to carbon removal and nature-based solutions, which I think is a relatively new term for a lot of people. So Marcin, can you tell us a bit about why nature-based climate solutions are critical and, and what they are? Right. So nature-based solutions is a way of using nature to help sequester carbon, to help our mitigation, and also to help people adapt to climate change. So for example, we know that our land and our oceans absorb many, many of the carbon emissions that we, that we have today. So retaining that and expanding that is really important in terms of us reaching our climate goals. And there are some statistics that say that even up to 30% of reaching our emissions targets can be reached through using nature to sequester carbon to uh, mitigate some of these carbon emissions. Nature can also help us adapt to climate change. So we look at, instead of having some of these, what we call gray infrastructure seawalls and all these very expensive ways of, of adapting, using our nature, our natural solutions, such as mangroves, such as peatland, such as salt marshes, things like that to help us react to rising sea levels or, or storms or floods is another way of helping people maintain their livelihoods and adapt to climate impacts. What nature-based solutions is not, and this is where we get the controversy, is it is not offsets. The idea that you can invest in nature and continue to pollute your business as usual is, is a fallacy. We, we, we do not have enough trees on the planet to, or, or cannot even grow enough trees in order to offset our emissions, right? And we do not have the technology now to pull carbon from the air at the level that we're doing. So we, we cannot look at this as a way of offsetting our continuing emissions. We need to use science to, to reduce our emissions, to bring down our footprints along with science in order to reach our goals in terms of the 1.5 degrees. Yeah. And I think that this whole issue of we can't, there isn't enough land there aren't enough trees in the world to pull the carbon out is one that's really, I think, rooted in some of the earliest carbon offset projects that we had, which were all around tree planting. And I think now it's really, we have to change the conversation about what the role of nature is in climate change mitigation and adaptation. As you said, it's not an offset, but it really has a different role to play, especially now when we're seeing you know, massive amounts of forests actually just burn down. Um, so that is pretty problematic if you plant an offset and then oof, yeah. now it's gone. Right. And you get the double, right? Not only do you not offset what you thought you were doing, you're releasing more carbon into the atmosphere as these forests burn. So yeah, maintaining and retaining nature, you know, retaining the biodiversity that we need to sustain our ecosystems. It's not just an either or. We can't just solve the climate crisis and feel like we, we can, you know, lose on biodiversity. We, these things are very intertwined, right? And so we need to really reset our relationship with our ecosystem on this earth, which is what maintains our, our, our lives and our livelihoods. Yeah. And I think it's not to say that we shouldn't try and incentivize businesses to support nature. It's just the idea that when you did that, then you could just continue to business as usual, create emissions. That, that's really not going to work in the future. Exactly. And so there's so many, there are many companies that do want to invest in nature outside of their supply chains in order to, to help nature and to help 
or carbon sequestration. And that's fine. We're not trying to discourage that. In fact, we, uh, as a conservation organization, of course, we, we love to see people invest in nature. It's just does not, we just can't have that as an, as a instead of, right? We want people to do what they need to do in terms of reducing their emissions in line with science. And then in addition to that, outside of their, beyond their, their supply chains, investing in nature. That's a win-win for everyone. And it's a both and rather than an, and an either or. Exactly. Yeah. Well said. <laughs> yeah. So, so let's talk a little bit about kind of what's next. So at COP, we're in a relatively soon after COP26 in Glasgow, the UK announced plans to become a net zero aligned financial center, which the idea is that this will make it mandatory for companies to publish net zero transition plans that will be overseen by an independent task force. However, at least at this point, these commitments, the commitments themselves are actually not going to be mandatory. So Marcin, you were there at COP, eyes on the ground in person. Can these types of policies really be credible without the government backing and and what should businesses do to show that they are credibly tackling the climate problem from their perspectives? Yeah, I mean, I do think that it's important what the UK did in terms of signaling. And, and I think it, it tells companies and investors that countries are going to be looking at this a lot closer. And so, you know, even in the US, we've seen signals from the SEC saying that they were going to look at, you know, transparency and reporting. And so I do think that that is really important. Now, does it have to be mandatory? I mean, remember, this is a global problem, right? And so to make that effective, you'd have to have enforcement throughout all of countries. And enforcement actions can be adversarial and sometimes inefficient. And many countries, particularly in the developing world, don't always have the capacity to enforce. So what I would say, it's important that governments put in these regulations, that they grease the wheels, that they help companies make the changes necessary, that they signal to investors that this is what they need to be looking at, um, and that they put in an ecosystem of accountability and transparency. I think then the corporations, we need to all hold them accountable and investor accountability is huge, but the corporations themselves need to figure out the best and most efficient ways for them to step up, for them to report and for them to make the changes. Because remember reporting and transparency is only step one. We need the information, but the most important step is what are you gonna do about it, right? How are you gonna actually reduce your emissions? How are, how are you gonna really react to the climate risks and manage those climate risks? Absolutely. Could not agree with you more. I like to think about it as your annual sustainability report is your report card, right? This is how we did. And if every year you score an F, doesn't doesn't add up to much impact. Right. Um, so, you know, it's not just, it's a reporting of actions that have happened. So actions need to happen um, in order to actually make progress. Right. But it's important for all of us to see this information and it's up to us and to investors, to consumers, to uh, all of us, to hold those corporations who are getting Fs year after year after year, uh, hold them accountable for it. If, if, we, if we let them give us give Fs and this just kind of shrug our shoulders, then we too are, are part of that. We need to make sure that there is accountability. Absolutely. And I think one, one earlier point that you made about the uneven regulatory environment is really interesting, particularly for companies that have long and complex supply chains that reach into the developing world where perhaps the 
enforcement mechanisms and, and ability to implement the type of regulation that we're talking about is just lacking. So if you're a company that's perhaps headquartered in the UK or listed in the UK, and maybe your manufacturing or your supply chain is agricultural in nature, or you have natural resources that are say in Africa or Latin America or Asia, I think it's really important for you. And this is one of the great things that setting a science-based target aligned with the new net zero standard is really excellent for improving progress because that forces you to look at your scope three. It forces you to look at supply chain. Exactly. So scope three is those emissions that add to your product, either because it comes from your supply chain or it comes from your consumers. And what we found that is in many companies, great progress has been made on what we call scope one and scope two. Scope one is your emissions that you yourself cause. And scope two is emissions from the electricity that you purchase. Many companies have been tackling that and are making great progress. But the problem is, if you look at their entire supply chain, most of their, their emissions often sit in the supply chain. They don't sit in those first two, scope one, scope two. So if you are a retailer or if you make clothing, most of your emissions are going to be sitting in those folks who are actually putting the clothing together, dyeing the clothing, et cetera, shipping the clothing. They're not gonna be in your scope one or scope two. And the same thing if you're a food retailer. So it is very important that we push our corporations to look at not only their immediate footprint, but the footprint of all the things that go into producing their product. Yeah. And I think it's, it's really important because I think that is, as you say, for many companies now where the opportunity and the action needs, needs to be because companies have been looking at scope one and scope two. So those direct emissions or in their purchased electricity or purchased steam and heat for quite some time. And many have made tremendous amount of progress. I mean, I look at some of the targets that I see where it's, you know, sort of a 60% reduction in scope one and two um, in the past five years, which is really, I think about where we were looking back in say 2003 on some of these targets and it, it sure wasn't that aggressive. So I think that's really a tremendous amount of progress, but now we need to look at these harder scope three emissions in the supply chain that are really, really important where the majority of the, of the challenges. So one of the criticisms, speaking of action, um, of COP was that it was just more blah, 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 kind of empty promises, too much talk, not enough action. What should all companies do now and for the next 10 years that will make a difference and represent to true action? Yeah, I mean, you hear that it was kind of a, a tale of two cities in the COP, right? So those who are out, what we call outside the COP, those who were protesting, those who were looking at the COP as this being the 26th COP, right? are understandably frustrated that, that more progress has not been made in, in the sense that we did not close the gap to 1.5 degrees with the NDCs that were put on the table. Those inside the COP, I would say, who've been working at this for a very long time, did see some progress, right? We talked about 1.5 for the first time, really. I mean, Paris was like under two and maybe 1.5. This one really talked about 1.5. We talked about, you know, reducing coal. We didn't get where we want to be, but it was the first time we really talked about transitioning out of fossil fuels for the first time. We talked about methane, which is a very heavy greenhouse gas, 82 times more than carbon, and how to get that out of the atmosphere. 
So there were some things that were positive, but I understand and, and, and I agree that we are not there yet. So I think one of the things to take out of COP is for me, is the focus not only on ambition, because ambition is a 20, net zero by 2050. It still feels far away. What we need to do is focus on the next eight years. This is where we have to reduce by 50%. And in order to reach that long-term goal in 2050, we need to really be able to reduce in the next eight years. We, we can't get there. We can't wait for 10 years and then say, oh, oh we're going to reduce to 100% in 20 years. We just wouldn't make it. So I would say that focusing on science-based target over the next decade is the crucial step to get to net zero. You know, someone told me once that you know, you know you're really doing something is when you're doing the boring stuff, right? It's, it's, that's when you're really doing the work. Most of the action is not only done by national governments, but it has to be done by others, such as businesses, such as subnational mm. governments, such as you know, society as a whole. So we need companies to, one, focus on their short-term reductions, because that's the action. That's where there's no more blah, blah. That's the boring stuff. That's getting it done. And then we also need companies to help fight for climate policy and public finance, right? Governments definitely have a role to play, and, and corporations have a lot of political influence on governments, and they need to use that, that political influence to pass legislation for financing, to pass policies and regulations that can help us move that needle in the next eight years. Yeah. And I really like what you said about, <laughs> it's about working on the boring stuff because, so sure, there's a lot of new and exciting technology out there around climate mitigation, but there's still a ton of stuff that we've known about for going on, you know, 30 odd years energy efficiency, low energy lighting, insulation in your building, getting a more efficient car, getting a more efficient fleet. We know we need to be doing these things. I, I don't know if some companies are waiting around for a more exciting solution. As you say, we got to get into action now. There's no silver medal here. <laughs> so yeah, exactly. This is one of those cases where close is not good enough, right? Right. Only only good in, uh, what, do they, what do they say? hand grenades and horseshoes, right? <laughs> <laughs> Everything else, mother nature does not count, you know, close enough. Right? No. So. I mean, Marcin, why do you think you've been in this field for a long time? Why do you think it's been so hard to get companies to kind of focus on these sort of things that we all know we need to be doing? We've got eight years to do it. Companies, governments, everyone, let's go, let's do it. In your observation, why has that been such a challenge so far? Yeah, I mean, I think that it is easy to make some of the, the bigger inspirational goals and targets. And, and I think that we have to give corporations, a lot of corporations, credit for doing that. We've seen, you know, many, many corporations, like if you look at the Fortune 500, uh, the majority of them now have some types of targets and goals and things of that sort. What's hard is changing from doing business as usual. It is the unknown. It is the costs that people are concerned about, right? It is how we pay for it that people are concerned about it. 
And so without the push of government, without government signaling, you know, corporations have been slow to react on their own. I think that now people are really seeing that it is in their long-term and now that the long-term is shorter term, right? Before we were talking about 2100, now we're talking about 2030. That's in every corporation's planning zone, right? Every corporation, every CEO has a plan between now and 2030 for all of its business. It's, it's within the planning zone. Yeah. And so now that it's in the planning zone, I think it's easier in some senses to tackle. And it's, it's easier to, to understand where these emissions are coming from. And we have more tools now to do things about it. We have the tools of renewable energy where the costs have fallen so that they are often competitive and sometimes lower than traditional fossil fuels. We have the technologies, as you've talked about, of efficiency. Many of those technologies are there. And there are exciting new things that will be coming down that we need to invest in now, but that we'll implement in 10, 20 years. So I think I'm, I'm optimistic that if we have the political will and if we hold both our governments and our corporations accountable, that we have the tools to start doing the, the hard work starting today uh, for the next step. Yeah, and I think one thing that's also an exciting tool is the acceleration of ESG-linked finance, and not just for investors looking at, you know, what has a company done and what's their sort of current carbon footprint, but what are their targets and plans? So what are they setting out as their actions over the next 10 years? What are they actually doing on that? And that's something that I'm hopeful for will help companies that need to get uh, a large infusion of of finance to maybe invest in some of these larger projects to be able to do that through some of those tools. And we're in a fortunate position at this point in time where we there is a lot of capital in this world, right? We all invest um, money in our pension funds, all have ways where they, these investors have trillions and trillions of dollars. What we need is the link to how do we unlock that capital that's sitting there and get it into the directions that we need it, get it out of fossil fuels and get it into clean energy, right? Get it out of, of doing things such as that is hurting the environment and hurting our communities and get it into nature positive type of investments. So that's this is an area that I really like to concentrate and focus on is how do we unlock that? And there, again, there's a lot of innovations in the financial world where you can you know, put the risk where they need to be so that this capital that is sitting on the sidelines gets used into the, in the ways that we, we, we need them. Absolutely. And so Marcine, what are some of the things that companies can do sort of right now immediately? And are there kind of resources that World Wildlife Fund has for, for them to, to take up so that they can take faster, more effective action? Yeah. What I would say first is for companies to please focus on the next eight years, right? That they need to set targets that are aligned with science. And they need to start putting plans to those targets of how they're going to achieve those in the short term, the five to 10 years. World Wildlife Fund and others can help these companies in terms of what that looks like. We also have a blueprint for corporate action. We just published a blueprint for corporate action on climate and, and nature. And also we have a second um, publication, which is a blueprint for high quality interventions that help people in the climate and nature. So there, we do have the resources to, to help these companies follow the path 
and really putting concrete plans of what they need to do in the short term to get to that longer term net zero target. That's great. Thanks, Marcine. So, you know, folks, be aware, 2030, no longer a long-term target. I know for many of us, it sounds like the future, but it's really not that far away. So, you know, commit to a science-based target. As Marcine said, World Life Fund is a founding member of the Science-Based Targets Initiative. They can help you set those targets. They can, if you look through the great resources that are there, and we'll put the links to those publications in the accompanying blog post for this podcast, companies can go there and get some really great tools right now. So Marcine, thank you so much for joining me. This was a really interesting conversation. I hope we get to follow it up with another topic someday. And thanks again for joining me. Great. Well, thank you for having me. And I just would leave with the audience that this, you know, a sense of urgency, a sense of focus on the short term, transforming our economy in 10 to 30 years is, is a massive effort. We've never done anything like this before. Usually these, these transformations take hundreds of years. So we really need to focus, to have a sense of urgency, to focus on the short term, to take those steps that we can take now and not to be afraid of setting ambitious targets that we don't quite know how to meet, but that we'll figure it out along the way. So if we can all do that and hold each other accountable for it, I really think that we'll be able to, to keep that temperature from rising beyond the point where science says that we can't manage it and we can have a really bright future. Thank you for tuning in. For more insights, visit our website at www.luminous.co.uk. 